The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Tom Pelton. He is a national award-winning environmental journalist and director of communications for the Environmental Integrity Project, which is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to holding polluters and governments accountable to protect public health. Tom is also co-director of the EIP Center for Environmental Investigations. He joined EIP in 2014 after working as a journalist for the Baltimore Sun, where he was twice named one of the best environmental reporters in America by the prestigious Society of Environmental Journalists. He is the author of the book, The Chesapeake in Focus, Transforming the Natural World, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. He is a graduate of Georgetown University and the University of Chicago, but he is the lead author in a recent report titled The Clean Water Act at 50, Promises Half-Kept at the Half-Century Mark, which reveals that almost four decades after the law's deadline for all waters across the U.S. to be fishable and swimmable, 50% of assessed river and stream miles are so polluted they are classified as impaired. So we are going to take a deep dive into this report, but we are also going to touch on some other of Mr. Pelton's reporting if we have time. I should also add that Mr. Pelton is no stranger to radio. He hosted the Environment in Focus from 2007 to 2021, and that was based on WYPR in Baltimore. I'll provide a link to that as well. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. So as a dietitian, I remember learning that water was our most important nutrient. And being someone who loves to swim, kayak, canoe, I can't bear to think that so many bodies of water in our country are impaired. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I have to ask you, how did you get started in a career in environmental journalism? Well, I was a newspaper reporter for many years, and I covered the western suburbs of Chicago for the Chicago Tribune, and I covered suburbs of Boston for the Boston Globe, and then I covered Anne Arundel County, Maryland, and then Baltimore for the Baltimore Sun. And everywhere I went, all over the country, I saw the same thing over and over again. Beautiful, distinctive old towns being abandoned for cookie-cutter subdivisions and strip malls out in the suburbs. I saw rolling countryside and forests and fields being blacktopped and destroyed for suburban sprawl. And it looked the same everywhere I went, whether I was in Illinois or Massachusetts or Maryland. And uh, it made me angry because it, it was so wasteful. And also the way it bled our historic cities like Baltimore and Chicago dry for totally destructive, mindless suburban development. And that really, after seeing that happen as a local reporter for so many years, 
it kind of moved something in me. And then at the Baltimore Sun, when the environmental beat opened up, I jumped at it because I thought, you know what, this is what I really care about. This is what I want to dedicate my life to. So how did you find the Environmental Integrity Project? So I was investigating coal-fired power plants in Maryland and violations of those coal plants of their soot limits, you know, this microscopic particles that get into your lungs and into your bloodstream and actually are deadly that are produced by the burning of coal. And I had boxes and boxes of records and documents from the state environmental agency, but they were very opaque and very full of jargon. I didn't know what they meant, but I connected with the former director of enforcement at EPA, Eric Schaefer, who was in charge when he was running EPA of all the enforcement of all the coal plants around the country. And I took the train down to D.C. and I showed him these boxes of documents that he basically kind of walked me through what they meant. And that, in fact, in Maryland, we did have thousands of illegal air pollution incidents every year from all these coal plants the state was doing nothing about. We worked great together. Uh, I published some front page stories in the Baltimore Sun on that. It triggered a state crackdown on this soot pollution and big fines on these companies. And Eric, you know, at the time, he had left EPA because he was frustrated that the Bush administration, the first President Bush, had basically told him to stop enforcing the law with regard to coal-fired power plants. And he said basically, no, this is deadly pollution. I'm going to enforce the law. And he left EPA to form his own group, the Environmental Integrity Project, which is basically a nonprofit organization that says, well, if EPA won't do its job, we'll do it for them. We sue big polluters like BP or ExxonMobil. But then what I do is I write in-depth investigative reports, like this one on the Clean Water Act at age 50, that really try to inspire policy changes to make a cleaner world. I just find it disgusting that policymakers would try to weaken an agency that is protecting public health and our water. I mean, what could be more important than water and air quality? Well, I mean, every single, not every single state, but we found that more than half of the states across the U.S. have been dramatically cutting back their state environmental agencies. And EPA has been cut back dramatically over the last two decades. So there has been a lot of cutting of scientists and regulators at both the federal and state level, the people who are responsible for being the kind of the pollution cops, we have fewer and fewer of them. Because of this misguided notion that Reagan started, that government is the problem, not the solution. You know, we need government to police these big polluters. And they're the only, it's the thin green line between our health and industry are these environmental agencies. And if we're cutting them and cutting them and cutting them, we're basically cutting into our own public health. Exactly. Well, we should talk about the Clean Water Act because it went into law in 1972. And let's talk a little bit about the history. What inspired that act? So back in the 1960s in particular, there was a growing sense of public outrage about the state of the earth. Rachel Carson, of course, kind of inspired a lot of this thinking about what we're doing to our planet through her book, Silent Spring. But then also, in 1959, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire. It actually wasn't the first time that the Cuyahoga River started burning because of oil and debris on its surface. It had actually happened many times before, but it made Time Magazine, and people were disgusted by that. There were record-breaking fish kills in Florida, millions of fish washing up dead. In our nation's capital, at the White House, they would shut the windows 
whenever foreign dignitaries arrived because the reek of sewage in the Potomac River was so bad that our government basically stank in Washington, D.C. In the Hudson River, for example, in New York, raw sewage was disgustingly common. And so there was a growing sense of outrage that we were really destroying our waterways. And so in 1972, the House and the Senate voted overwhelmingly, Republicans and Democrats, to pass this incredibly ambitious Clean Water Act. Nixon vetoed it, and then the House and the Senate overrode the veto by overwhelming margins, even most Republicans. And it, you know, so these incredibly ambitious expectations, it aimed to stop all water pollution into our nation's waters and make all of our waters fishable and swimmable by 1983, 10 years after its passage. Of course, now, 50 years later, 40 years after that deadline, we found that half of America's waters are so polluted, they are classified as impaired, which is to say that they're not safe for swimming or fishing or other public uses. This is just so tragic, and it's why I wanted to have you on with me today. So a couple of points. The Clean Water Act requires states to submit periodic reports on the condition of their rivers, streams, lakes, and estuaries to the U.S. EPA. What is each state required to measure, or does it vary by state? The states are required to tell EPA which of their waterways are impaired or not usable for swimming, for drinking water, for aquatic habitat, for fish consumption. And the states can also use their own judgment. I mean, there's a lot of latitude in what EPA allows the states to report. And we found as we looked at the 50 different states, actually, it's kind of a chaotic system. Each state defines impaired in different ways. I'll give you a classic example. Mercury is in fish across this whole country because of coal-fired power plants. You know, when you burn coal, the mercury pollution goes up into the air and it drifts for sometimes thousands of miles mm-hmm. uh, and then settles down into wetlands and then gets absorbed into the bodies of fish. And then when you eat those fish, whether it's tuna you buy in the grocery store or a salmon you catch in a river, you get that mercury in your body. And of course, mercury can cause brain damage. So there are fish all over the U.S. that have this mercury from coal-fired power plants that are not local. Some of this mercury is literally coming from China, for example, or some of the mercury here in Maryland is coming from Ohio. In Missouri, some of the mercury is coming from California or Wyoming. And so it drifts. But different states classify impaired for fish consumption differently. In Minnesota, for example, they say that lots of the fish that are caught up in Minnesota do have mercury fish advisories on them, meaning you're not supposed to eat more than, say, one or two helpings a month of certain fish because of the mercury in the flesh. And so Minnesota classifies almost all of its lakes as impaired for fish consumption. Now, if you look at Connecticut, for example, fish in Connecticut are also impaired by the same mercury. But they've decided not to list waterways that have these mercury-contaminated fish as impaired. Wow. So Minnesota and Connecticut have the same problem. But if you look at the numbers, it looks like Minnesota is much dirtier than Connecticut. That's not true. It's just that dates are allowed by EPA to classify impaired differently. And that does make it kind of challenging to compare state to state. That is a problem. There needs to be consistency. In fact, I always tell people that if they are going to be going out fishing, 
they need to check with their Department of Health to see which fish are most likely to be contaminated. And especially if a woman is pregnant or if you're feeding children, this becomes especially important. Another concern of mine is, in addition to now that I know that there's not consistency, is what chemicals are tested and which chemicals are not. So for example, if you are living in the Mississippi River watershed, there is going to be enormous amounts of pesticide and herbicide use, especially on commodity crops that are genetically engineered to be resistant to these increasing numbers of herbicides, as well as atrazine, for example, which is typically used on corn as well as sugarcane. Who is testing the rivers and streams and lakes for these herbicides and pesticides? Right. The Clean Water Act does not even go there. There's a Drinking Water Act that you're supposed to test for herbicides and pesticides in drinking water, but that's a different law. Mm. Um, the, the Clean Water Act, what they're measuring, it's the state environmental agencies, and they go out and they, they have the freedom to test for a lot of different things, and they don't all test for the same things. But most of the states test for nitrogen, uh, nitrates that run off, say, uh, of cornfields. There's nitrogen fertilizer, ammonia is sprayed onto cornfields and runs off into streams. You know, lawns have nitrogen fertilizer put on them that runs off phosphorus. Uh, phosphorus is also a form of fertilizer. It comes from poultry manure and also chemical fertilizers. They test for using E. coli, a fecal bacteria that is used as an indicator for other fecal pathogens. If there's high levels of E. coli in a stream, that means there's probably pathogens like cryptosporidium and other intestinal parasites and bacteria that'll make you sick if you happen to swim in the water. Often this comes from, for example, on a lot of farm fields, they'll spray hog waste as a fertilizer that'll run off into the waterways, has a lot of E. coli bacteria. In a lot of places with dairy farms, the cows will just stand in the streams and the cows will defecate into the streams and send a lot of E. coli downstream. Uh, but then also comes from other sources, like, for example, pet waste running off of parks or geese, for example. So they test for E. coli bacteria for safety of swimming. They'll test for how much oxygen is in a stream or a river. And if there's not enough oxygen to support aquatic life, they'll say that's impaired for aquatic life. And oxygen sometimes is sucked out of a waterway when there's so much nitrogen and phosphorus running into a stream. It feeds these big algae blooms. And then when the algae dies, that process sucks all the oxygen out of a waterway and makes it impossible for fish to live. So those are some of the main things that states test for, nitrogen, phosphorus, E. coli bacteria, and oxygen levels. And this process doesn't involve testing for pesticides or herbicides. Okay. Tom, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Tom Pelton. He's an award-winning environmental journalist, and he's also one of the lead authors in a report titled The Clean Water Act at 50, Promises Half-Kept at the Half-Century Mark, and this was produced by the Environmental Integrity Project. So the one piece from this report that really jumped out to me was this simple little fact that I had no idea was true, and that is that agricultural runoff is the leading cause of water pollution in the United States, and yet agricultural runoff is not monitored in the Clean Water Act. That's right. It's not regulated. Not regulated. Um, and the Clean Water Act has very strong controls on waste that is piped from factories or sewage plants into rivers. Facilities like that have to get a government permit 
that says exactly how much pollution they're allowed to discharge. It's monitored closely, and if they violate that, they're fine. But most of the pollution we see in our waterways today comes from runoff pollution, which is to say when farmers spread either manure or chemical fertilizer on their cornfields or soybean fields and it rains, that fertilizer is washed into the nearby streams. There's almost no controls on that type of runoff pollution in the Clean Water Act. It's a huge loophole for farming in the Clean Water Act. And that is the Achilles heel. That is the huge flaw in the law. And that's why, for example, we see today in Lake Erie, every summer, these gigantic algal blooms that come from farm runoff in northern Ohio, for example. In Florida, we see giant toxic algal blooms in the lakes of Florida that, again, come from farm runoff and also suburban runoff, lawns that have lawn fertilizer that gets washed into the waterways. So there's a huge loophole in the Clean Water Act for runoff pollution from farms. It's worth noting that EPA did allow some controls for farm pollution for factory farms, for meat production. These facilities called concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs that have tens of thousands of pigs or chickens in these metal buildings. If you have one of those large-scale factory farms, you need to get a water pollution control permit and follow it. However, a lot of states just don't do that. They have the power to do it, but they don't do it, in part because the farm lobby is very powerful, very influential, and a lot of state environmental agencies kind of defer to the power of the farm lobby. And so one of the things we urge in our report is for states and EPA to use the power they do have, which is to crack down on these factory-style meat production facilities and get them to control the manure more responsibly. Absolutely. Eric Schaefer, the executive director of the Environmental Integrity Project, has a great quote in a review of this report that I saw where he said, I have to say the Farm Bureau makes the coal lobby and the oil lobby look like the little sisters of mercy just in terms of how powerful the Farm Bureau is, in terms of protecting these big industrial farms and limiting any attempts that we've tried to make on limiting their pollution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Farm Bureau is a little bit like the NRA, uh, extremely powerful, extremely influential, and just really determined to prevent any kind of common sense regulation that would benefit the common good. They're anti-regulatory in the extreme. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because agriculture these days is an industry. A lot of the meat production in particular is run by these international meat corporations, whether it's Cargill or Tyson's, that have millions of animals and buildings. It should be regulated like any other industry, like the auto industry, like the petrochemical industry. We need to start regulating the agricultural industry with the same kind of rigor that we do these other major industries, because it's not a mom-and-pop farmer. It's no longer the old-timey 1950s version of the heroic farmer out on his own, you know, in a cornfield. We're talking about multinational corporations making billion dollars of profit and fighting against any kind of regulation that would protect our waterways or our health. And you've seen the bumper sticker, no farms, no food. And that's meant to say, basically, back off. If you try to regulate us, we'll take you down. You know, I find that a very aggressive statement, no farms, no food. What are you saying? You're saying, so you're going to take our food away if we try to stop using you from using pesticides or herbicides? The agricultural industry 
like all of us, needs to follow rules. And right now they get a great big green pass because of their incredible political influence. And it's so interesting whenever we try to have some regulations. And a good friend of mine who works in environmental issues said that we really shouldn't call them regulations. We should call these acts and laws that try to protect our public health as protections, just to reframe that. And I think as a journalist, you probably appreciate the nuances of the language. But if we don't protect our water through our government, you know, rather than looking at this as, oh, the government versus us, and start seeing the government as our body that right. can protect larger things that individual consumers cannot. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, number one, I think we need to recognize that regulation works. There's, it's been demonized by the Republican Party in particular uh, since Ronald Reagan, but it's being demonized because it's the only safeguard that we have between us and our health and these corporations that are trying to do everything they can to get profit out of our system. And so it's our democratically elected government that is trying to make rules, common sense rules for all of us to follow. Yes, there are some bad regulations. Of course there are. There's some bad laws. Of course there are. But in general, we need to accept the fact regulations work. They actually do clean up the water. The Clean Water Act was very successful in its first two or three decades at stopping a lot of pollution. So the answer is not to have more free market solutions, which don't work. It's not to have more voluntary solutions, which don't work. It's not to put the blame on the consumers like, hey, you, why are you taking that Pepsi can? Let's put the blame on you. Well, why don't we look at Pepsi? They're making a lot of money off these disposable cans. Let's take a look at the producers of whether it's the agrochemicals, whether it's the companies that make all the pork production facilities and then all the waste. Let's put the emphasis on the responsibility for the corporations that are making all this waste and not on the consumers who really don't have that much control. Right. And I think it's really important to pay attention to the language that is used. And there are certain red flags that pop up for me anyway. Like, for example, when we talk about nitrogen and phosphorus, you will rarely hear those words referred to as pollutants. Instead, you'll hear them referred to as nutrients. Right. Nutrients sounds like vitamin C, like something that's good for you. Nutrients are, if you're talking about nitrogen and phosphorus, those are pollutants. Exactly. Uh, you know, so, so there's a lot of kind of gamesmanship that's used with the words. And, you know, there's something that's called nutrient trading. Uh, it's kind of a pre-market scheme where, well, let's let this guy pollute more over here and he's going to send some money to this other guy over here. You know, but that's pollution trading. That's not nutrient trading. And so, yes, a lot of it has to do with correctly describing the problem that we face. Exactly. You know, I knew our time was going to fly, and we just have five minutes. So this is a large report. If you don't want to wade through all of it, I would encourage people to at least look at the executive summary very carefully and look at your own state to see how waterways are being investigated, how many of them have been looked at and then go from there. And so I want to touch on that go from there perspective. So we take a look at this excellent report, the Clean Water Act at 50. We notice that there are some states that need to do a better job of monitoring. What would you recommend to our listeners who are interested in protecting their water? Well, I think the number one thing we can all do to protect our waters 
is vote. You know, often people do put a lot of emphasis on the consumer, like each one of us is going to save the world by changing our light bulbs. Change your vote to make sure that you're voting for people who support strong environmental regulation, who support adequate funding for environmental agencies, adequate funding for infrastructure improvements, for example. So the number one thing you can do as a consumer is to vote for the environment. The League of Conservation Voters does a great job of giving grades to all your legislatures in in the different states. Look that up and vote for the environment. Number two, what can we all do? You can write your congressman or your senator. They actually do respect when you send them an actual old-time letter or, or an email that's thoughtful. Tell them that the Biden administration should go ahead and increase funding for the EPA. It's before Congress right now. The Biden administration, after years of cuts at the EPA, is now proposing a significant increase in funding for the EPA. Write your senator, write your congressperson and say, yes, we strongly support an increase in funding for the EPA. We really need these scientists and regulators to protect our waterways. Another thing you can do is you can let your lawmakers know that we need to end the loophole in the Clean Water Act for farms that we should no longer accept as normal that the agricultural industry gets a pass on water pollution, that the Clean Water Act should be revised and strengthened so that people who are living downstream in the agricultural industry, for example, know that their children can swim and fish and live and enjoy their waterways without having to worry about water pollution. There are other things that can be done, too. For example, EPA or Congress should be able to make universal standards for all the states so that they're all defining impaired waterways the same way. Right now, there's a real kind of patchwork of different systems of analyzing waterways and defining which waterways are polluted or impaired. Because of that chaos, it's very difficult to really judge which states are doing better than other states in terms of water pollution. And it's also very difficult to allocate resources appropriately to protect the most vulnerable populations when each state has the freedom to define impaired waterways differently. So some kind of standardization would be very helpful across the U.S. in terms of how we define a polluted waterway. Well, Tom, I'm going to provide a link to this excellent report, as well as the League of Conservation Voters. That's an excellent suggestion. And I will provide a link also to your series of radio programs for anyone who's interested in environment, whether it's water or just appreciating the value of nature in protecting our health. Do you want to leave our listeners with a charge? Yeah, I mean, I would say don't give up hope. What we did see from the passage of the Clean Water Act 50 years ago is that when we pass laws, when we create regulations, they do work. We have thousands of miles of waterways across the U.S. that are much cleaner now than they were 50 years ago. We should be heartened by that. We should think, yes, this is something that shows that when our government acts to protect the public health and to make a cleaner world, it works. So now we just have to finish the job. We're only about halfway there. Half of our waterways are still so polluted we can't use them for fishing or swimming. Let's finish the job. Let's complete this kind of crusade that we're on make a cleaner, healthier planet. We can do it. We've seen that we've made progress. Now let's finish the job of cleaning up our waters. Thank you. We can all start by checking out the Environmental Integrity Project and this excellent report, The Clean Water Act at 50, 
promises half kept at the half century mark. We have to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Tom Pelton, a national award-winning environmental journalist and one of the lead authors on this excellent report through the Environmental Integrity Project. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.